singularity. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One on One. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better by either writing a brief review on iTunes or simply by making a donation. Today, my guest on the show is Ramez Naam. Ramez is a computer scientist and entrepreneur um, and also the author of a, a very interesting book, More Than Human, which won him the 2005 H.G. Wells Award for Contributions to Transhumanism. Most recently, however, Mez published his first novel, titled Nexus, which has an absolutely amazing barrage of reviews from places like Wired Magazine and Cory Doctorow. And I have to say that I read it uh, during the New Year's uh, holidays, and I'm just absolutely blown away uh, by it. Um, I just want to uh, read two brief reviews so that you guys uh, get the gist of the idea here, but... Wired Magazine uh, says, good, scary good. Stop reading now and have a great time reading a bleeding-edge technical tri thriller that is full of surprises. And Cory Doctorow said, Nexus is, a, Nexus is a superbly plotted high-tension techno thriller full of delicious moral ambiguity. A hell of a read. So without further ado, hi, Mez, and welcome to Singularity One-on-One. -on -One. Hi, Nicola. It's good to be here again. Oh, it, it's great to have you back. Uh, by the way, uh, for those who missed my first interview with uh, Mez, uh, that was the time when we discussed uh, his previous book, More Than Human, uh, and he shared a lot about uh, his background and his general interest in technology, physics, computer science, and so on. But today, we want to start our conversation uh, with Nexus. So, Mez, I want to share how I actually read your book, because what happened was this. Um, I received, I ordered your book uh, online as soon as I read the first reviews. Um, I mean, I was going to uh, order it anyway, but the reviews kind of reminded me of it, so I went ahead and I ordered it. And, you know, it's a, it's a nice and hefty little book. It's about 450-500 pages. So my plan was to read it sort of step-by-step, step, take it easy over the Christmas holidays, maybe 100 pages per day, in between other things. So I think it was December the 30th when I opened up the book for the first time in late afternoon, maybe 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and I just couldn't stop. Uh, I read until probably the first 180 pages or so, and then I simply had to go to bed. But the next day I finished the book, probably again in late afternoon. So it took me about maybe 24, 28 hours to finish it, or, or something like that, maybe 30 hours at the most. Basically, I just couldn't stop reading it. Once I got through the first 50 pages, I got hooked. And once I got through the first uh, 150 pages, I just had to rush through it. It was so enthralling <laughs> and captivating. So... Uh, Perhaps it's best to start our conversation today by you telling us what is Nexus about? Well, first, thank you. That's awesome to hear. Um, I definitely did my best to make the book one that you couldn't put down. Uh, David Brin talks about that, that the mark of success for an author is when someone says, damn you, I lost my job because of you. I didn't <laughs> feed my kids because of you. So that's, that's a high praise. Um, 
Nexus is a near future thriller. It's set in 2040, now 27 years in the future, not that long, really. Uh, in the book, someone has developed a technology called Nexus. It's packaged as a drug. You swallow it, and it's actually nanoparticles that assemble in your brain and uh, make you weakly telepathic with other people who have Nexus. What that means is that they attach to your neurons and they broadcast via radio, via Wi-Fi, essentially, what your neurons are doing, and listen to other people's neurons as well. And then it's a thriller about uh, the conflict over this technology between a group of young scientists, grad students, working to hack on it, make it better, build apps on it, improve the range, a government agency in the U.S. that's trying to crack down on it as they're cracking down on all transhumanist technologies, and a foreign government, China, that might be using it for nefarious purposes of mind control and assassination. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I have to say, you totally, absolutely succeeded in creating a I-can't-put-it-down type of a novel, uh, very gripping and, and very captivating. But um, tell me, why did you decide to bring about all those issues within the format of a novel rather than nonfiction like your previous book? Well, I've done nonfiction. I have another nonfiction book coming out. I love writing nonfiction. I also love writing fiction. Um, this is my first piece of fiction, but very enjoyable. It has a different impact on people, and it can reach different people. Uh, no one has ever told me that a piece of nonfiction I've written has kept them awake till 3 a.m. Uh, but people have called me up and said, I couldn't put your book down. I was up till 3 a.m. reading. Uh, and so that's a way to reach people that I think is in some ways kind of more effective or can certainly hit them more emotionally than most nonfiction can. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I think uh, you definitely reach me emotionally. And, and I think that when you want to evoke response uh, in people, uh, emotional, touching them emotionally may actually be a lot more um, impactful and, and efficient than merely logically. Yes, we're emotional creatures. Yes, absolutely. So I, I did very much enjoy your previous book, uh, More Than Human, and it's a, it's a, it's another great book. But uh, I I cannot compare the the sort of the the grip that that this book had on me. From as I said, fifty pages down the book, I was already like totally captivated. Uh, now tell us what are some of the major issues that you discuss or that you wanted to bring light upon uh, by writing a book like Nexus and uh, in particular that uh, sort of brain-to-brain, as you called it, weak brain-to-brain interpersonal communication technology that you talk about. Great. There's three or four issues, really, uh, at the sort of um, interpersonal and sort of science fiction end of it. It's what is it like to have a really robust brain-computer and brain-to-brain interface. What can we do with that? How does it uh, look like to interface with software, to have control over your own emotions, your own behaviors, to share ideas with other people? That's at one end of the spectrum, and sort of the neuroscience of that, as well as the ramifications. And then at the other end of the spectrum, there are the questions about um, how do we relate to technology when it can cause both good things and bad things? 
Uh, how should we think about that? How should we regulate it? What happens if we crack down on it? What happens if we're too permissive with it? So that sort of spectrum of things is what I tried to cover here. Yeah, and I think you do it fantastically well. I'm sorry, I'm not usually full of superlatives, I have to say. And, <laughs> and, and people who watch my previous interviews know that very well. But I just love this book. And, and the reason is because you very skillfully, and, and I don't even know how you managed to do that at your first try, but you very skillfully managed to bring ethical issues, political issues, security issues, even religious issues, uh, not only just mere scientific issues, and very skillfully intermix all of them in a very potent thriller action sort of a, a book. That, that, that's just fantastic, I think. And, and so tell me why, I mean, is there, if I try to paraphrase one of your characters uh, who says there's a war coming and you can choose to be uh, on the side of the forces that fight against progress or you can stand on the side of progress. So first of all, do you think that's true? Uh, and, and second of all, is there really a war coming? I actually, I don't think that's true. Um, you exaggerate for the purpose of fiction in many cases. Uh, some of that riffs off of a few things. One is, when I wrote More Than Human, it was a response in many ways to a movement among ethicists and bioethicists and a particular group called the President's Council on Bioethics uh, to make the case that enhancement technology was bad. So we had people like uh, Leon Cass, who was the chairman of this uh, Presidential Council on Bioethics, Francis Fukuyama, who's a, a very well-regarded historian, philosopher, a sort of a leading neocon intellectual, um, and then even outside of that group, people like Bill McKibben, who's on the far left, not the far right, who's a, a wonderful environmentalist. Uh, but all of them, in some way, were saying, hey, we should not allow enhancement, or we should be very suspicious of it, we should... Uh, renounce it to some extent. We should uh, consider using the power of the state to ban it effectively. So that was the response uh, in More Than Human. And to a certain extent, Nexus imagines what if these people had their way um, and what would that look like? And to make that plausible, I try to give society the best reasons possible to listen to that set of arguments, mm -hmm. which is... I imagine that very bad things have happened. There have been bioterrorist attacks. Yeah. There have been people who've uh, tried to use eugenics to create master races. There have been experiments with uh, mind-controlled drugs or mind-controlled biotechnologies that have created kind of new uh, cults and, and horrific events. So society reacts in negative ways when it's threatened. So I try to portray that happening, because bad things do happen with technology, to give the best case possible for the, the conservative, don't enhance ourselves side of things. Mm -hmm. um, but in reality, I think uh, people, individuals, are very eager to embrace enhancement, typically, and so I don't think society will end up going that way. So you disagree with people such as, for example, Hugo de Garris, um, whom I interviewed here some time ago, and who is who is pretty much betting uh, his reputation, or he's one of the foremost champions of the idea that there will be a, what he calls a giga war uh, coming up with giga death between what he calls uh, Terrans uh, and uh, Terrans and Artilects. Artilects, yes. Yeah. Uh, I, 
I don't think that's going to happen. But, you know, the future is wide open. None of us is ever perfect in predicting the future. Mm -hmm. So I think it's more likely that over time uh, we will uh, adapt to and accept the enhancements that are beneficial to us. Like, can you imagine a war between smartphone users and non-smartphone users? <laughs> That's, it's not like some people are saying, oh my gosh, you should not use smartphones. Uh, and we're going to fight to the death to keep you from using smartphones because they give you an advantage. Instead, people are saying, hey, I want a smartphone. How do I get one? Can, how does it get cheap enough for me to afford it? Yeah, but I can imagine a war between people who are pro-choice and, and, and you know, pro-life for example, or, or clashes between people who are pro-gay marriage or anti-gay marriage. And, yeah. and I'm, I'm thinking that those issues would be relatively negligible compared to the issues resulting from advanced transhumanist technologies that there you will, describe in your book. Yeah, there will be societal conflict. And sometimes that will just be raised voices, sometimes that will be legislation, and sometimes it might mean violence as well. Um, I, I do want to say there's another set of conflicts that I modeled the conflicts in the book around, mm -hmm. which have very little to do with transhumanism, or, or a little bit to do with transhumanism, but not directly, which is the current U.S. war on drugs and the war on terror. Um, and both of those are, you know, that's what I extrapolate from to say, hey, we're going to have a potentially in the book, I describe sort of a war on science or a war on transhumanism, if you will, but it really resembles mostly the war on drugs and the war on terror. Yeah, and, and, and so let me break this into two, two parts, first of all, then. So, first of all, how much of, of the book is science fiction and how much of it is science? I know that at the very back of the book you have a fantastic sort of a, uh, afterword where you talk about the science of nexus. But perhaps for the benefit of our viewers and listeners who haven't read the book yet, how much of it is total fiction? Well, the book is, is fiction. The story is fiction. The science or the technology I described has not been invented yet, but everything about it is scientifically possible. Uh, so today we have brain-computer interfaces that are enabling paralyzed people to move robot arms. There was a great video that went around uh, a month or two ago showing a woman uh, drinking coffee using a robot arm uh, just by via an implant in her motor cortex. We have retinal prostheses that are in late-stage human trials restoring sight to the blind. We have cortical visual prostheses that for a decade we've had trials on that pump vision straight into the visual cortex of the brain. Uh, we had, uh, in the last year, a case where putting people in an fMRI machine and showing them videos, an algorithm could decode, just by looking at activity in the visual cortex, what it was they were seeing. We have advances in the, the, the core technology of this. So the basic technology of being able to send data in and out of the human brain um, is starting to appear. The science certainly allows for it. The conceit in the book is that a, it's gotten very good, and B, uh, there's a non-invasive way to do this, that you can swallow something and it will cross the blood-brain barrier and reach your brain and do these things, as opposed to having to have a surgery that puts something through your skull or something else like that. Mm -hmm. So why did you decide to focus your first novel on a technology like that and not something else, for example? I mean, there's a variety of options you could have gone for, and yet you chose 
that sort of direct brain-to-brain communication technology. When I wrote More Than Human, which came out way back in 2005, that was my favorite uh, set of chapters. There were two chapters on that brain-to-brain communication technology, and that's what I found most most transformative because living longer is one thing. Um, you know, having bigger muscles, we can probably do that with with biotech very soon now, is very nice. But nothing to me seems as transformative as having the ability to uh, communicate with other people and to manipulate your own mind via software. Um, that we live inside of our brains, essentially. So that's sort of one side of it. Uh, the other side, I'd say, is yes, I love space opera. I read uh, stories about that and so on. But you look at the pace of progress, of what's actually happening in technology. The real progress in the last few decades has been the technologies of inner space, if you will, the technologies of information, so computing, communication, neuroscience, biotech, that's where we've really made progress, whereas we've made virtually no progress in space. So if you look at uh, science fiction of anything like the next several decades, maybe even the next century or two, Mm -hmm. the bulk of humanity is going to live on the planet Earth, and the most profound changes are not that we're going to be zipping around in spaceships, they're going to be changes to ourselves. So that's what I think the future really holds, and so if I want to write science fiction, I want to be true to that. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, uh, is your book... uh intended to be a form of entertainment? Is it uh, sort of uh, supposed to be edutaining, educational, and and um, entertaining? Is it uh, like a warning, for example, about some of the issues that or the problems that we might face in the future? Well, Marshall McLuhan, the, the great media theorist, said that uh, anyone who differentiates between entertainment and education doesn't understand either. <laughs> um, I, McLuhan was exaggerating. I don't think he's exactly correct. But you know, how do you, how do you reach people with an idea? You have to captivate them. You have to rivet them. Um, so I, if Nexus succeeds only as something where people love it and are sucked into it and uh, feel a, a sense of joy or excitement reading it, fantastic. Uh, but I think it also does convey other ideas. And so I want to do several things. In it. I want to explore what the future is like. Um, it is also, it's an attempt in a certain sense at political activism. It's a book that hopefully persuades those who read it that we should be more accepting of these technologies than we should be uh, fearful of them, though we also have to be a little bit fearful of them. And to be totally honest, it is an anti-drug war, an anti-war and terror polemic. It's a lot of great science fiction is about the present, and Nexus is as well. Yeah, I think uh, uh, in my interview with Cory Doctorow, he said that uh, science fiction is always a reflection of the present, and it's, in his claim, very horrible at predicting the future. <laughs> yeah, I think that's accurate. Yeah. So but, so, but in that sense, let me ask you this then. So do you think that our society... Uh, the Western civilization is poss- especially like North America and Europe would be as easy to subvert and to, to turn into the totalitarian sort of censorship ridden society that you describe in your book in the 2030s and late 2030s and early 2040s. Uh, societies contract in response to fear. 
You know, I think there's also there's a, a quote, um, oh my gosh, who's the famous erotic writer who, Anais Nin, who wrote, uh, life expands or contracts in proportion to one's courage. Right, so you can also look at it as societies expand or contract their freedoms uh, in inverse proportion to their fear. Mm-hmm. And today in the U.S., we're not a totalitarian state. We're a, quite a free state, but we're less free than we were on September 10th yes. of, of 2001. Um, the U.S. Congress and the president just reauthorized um, warrantless wiretapping. So now... With a police officer, uh, basically this is an assertion that this is a terrorism-related case, can tap into your email, uh, your telephones, and so on and so on. We have sneak and peek warrants, so they need to issue a warrant for this, but the police can enter your home, search it, uh, and leave without you ever knowing that it even happened. Uh, so... These are things that are definitely a sign of less freedom than what we used to have. And that has happened because we're afraid. Because 9-11 was a major shock to the U.S. psyche. Uh, the U.S., unlike Europe, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, the U.S. had never really experienced much terrorism on its own shores. And it went from almost no terrorism on its own shores, nothing besides, let's say, Oklahoma City, yeah. which was domestic. No foreign act of terrorism on uh, U.S. shores, U.S. property, uh, to something that looked very apocalyptic. Now, uh, 9-11, I think there were between 4,000 and 5,000 casualties. In in real terms, it was uh, a quarter, a fifth of the domestic gun violence that happens in the U.S. per year. Uh, you know, probably... Many, many more people have been killed by other causes, but those images on television of buildings falling um, were tremendously, tremendously traumatic yeah. to the people who watched them. And that is why we have a little bit less freedom today than we used to. So if enough scary things happen, people will give up their freedoms in exchange for security. And that's sort of understandable. You can see why people would do that. Um, but it's not necessarily rational or healthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, Benjamin Franklin is reputed to have said, uh, those who would sacrifice liberty for a little temporary safety uh, deserve neither. I think he's probably been misquoted, and there's some debate over what, exactly what it was that he said. Uh, but that's sort of the theme of it, that if you give up your security, to, if you give up your, your freedom in exchange for security, to a certain extent the terrorists are winning. Uh, so I think we're letting the terrorists win now, and that's sort of what I see as a possibility related to these technologies like Nexus. Mm-hmm. I have to say that I agree entirely with you, and if I fear anything, I fear fear more than anything, because yes. it is the fear that makes us overreact, or at least uh, the war on terrorism was in many ways an overreaction to what happened on September 11, and, and I yes. can plausibly see the possibility if we have people like Francis Fukuyama in charge of, of certain key positions of, of policy uh, and we have, you know, sequence of, of events worse than September 11, yeah. I can totally see the possibility of, of some of that, uh, you know, really discriminatory and, and absolutely totalitarian legislation going through fast-tracking through both Congress and the Senate and eventually being signed by the President. Uh, and that, to me, is, is really scary. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. 
now, uh, as soon as I finished the first 150 pages from the book, I think I tweeted, and one of my um, blog readers and followers uh, said she's going to go and buy the book immediately, and she did so, and she uh, submitted a question that I want to ask you because it's, a, it's on that topic of fear exactly. Great. So C.M. Stewart says that her favorite excerpt from the book is this, quote, hive, mi- hive minds, borgs, superorganisms, some spat out. What if they don't like us? So that's like the, the key question of fear, right? And then the response to that in the book was, how could they not like us? They will be us. So she says after that, quite a lot to ponder. I wonder how we can possibly guess correctly the preferences of a hive mind. Simple majority rule may not apply anymore. Take a look at crowd psychology and then imagine what a virus could do to a hive mind. I also wonder about the very real possibility, in my opinion, of mind infiltration without knowledge of the infiltration from both sides. Someone's mind, a test subject perhaps, and later an unsuspecting civilian could be connected to another mind, and neither mind would have prior knowledge or consent of the connection. I speculate this would be a relatively easy hack compared to the work involved in creating a mind-to-mind drug software in the first place. The definition of privacy is changing, and I'm sure scientists could find a way to rationalize this kind of experimentation. So would you... Care to uh, comment on that a little bit? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Yes, um, absolutely. There are absolutely risks, uh, uh, tremendously so. So it, given a technology like this, we will certainly see abuses of it. We will see invasions of privacy. Uh, we will see coercion technologies created. Um, that's one side of it. And in the book, the, the rationale of the U.S. agency, part of the Department of Homeland Security, that blackmails the protagonist, Cade, into working for them, is that they are they have data, they have intelligence, saying that a foreign country, China, is using this mind-to-mind technology for espionage, for mind control, uh, to turn people into suicide bombers and so on. And I, it would be surprising if we didn't see the use of the technology in that way. So there's no technology ever that has had only bad uses or even one that's had uh, only good uses. Uh, any technology you develop will have some of both. So we have to just be cognizant of that. And, but that doesn't mean that we should wholesale ban it. It means we should put regulations around it to try to minimize the bad uses and maximize the potential for good uses. Um, on her other question about hive minds, I think the next sentence in that exchange is uh, Sam goes on to say, or perhaps, if I, if I recall correctly, that what about those who don't want to join this, right? Yeah. So that's another question that people bring up, and Fukuyama brings this up as well mm-hmm. in regards to things like Ritalin. Uh, now we have competitive pressure in school that might lead parents to accept Ritalin for their kids that wouldn't have a while back because they have to keep up with the other kids or because the definition of what is ADHD has changed and so on. So if you have an enhancement technology, of course, you're going to have some some pressure to use it, and those who don't have access to it might not be able to keep up. So absolutely. I definitely tried to write this book in a way that was not black and white, that showed the shades of gray, um, and there are real risks and real challenges to this sort of technology that means that it have to be, has to be managed well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that actually that situation reminds me very much to 
what in political science we used to debate a lot about uh, the Cold War, and that's prisoner's dilemma. That's mm-hmm. like the, the claim that, you know, you always have a dominant strategy and you always end up in a suboptimal equilibrium for both sides uh, or for all the sides of the interaction. And so the idea is that, you know, if we don't develop this technology for military purposes, then the Russians or the Chinese or whoever else will, and therefore they would have an advantage. If, you know, my kid doesn't take this um, cognitive drug, cognitive enhancing drug, then the neighbor's kid would take it, and then they'll go to a better school than my kid. Right. Um, but that all of that having been said, um, we seem to get positive results out of these things anyway, right? That um, certainly a lot of advances in aviation happen for military reasons, a lot of the work in jet engines and so on, and yet the vast majority of the utilization of those is actually for civilians going from place to place. Uh, and there are... You know, positive some game theoretical exchanges. That's why the world as a whole is much richer than it was 10, 20 years ago. And again, you look at the internet was initially funded by ARPA, you know, out of the Department of Defense, and yet its usage is almost entirely civilian. Um, the military was a, an early investor in semiconductor technology, you know, way back in, in several decades ago, and yet the vast majority of that utilization is for civilian. Uh, civilian usage. And not only just for civilian usage, now there are more mobile phones in Asia than there are in North America and Europe. <laughs> so this is a, a tremendously positive sum exchange where you have primarily uh, U.S. designers uh, or you know, uh, primarily people in the West doing the design work to create these new technologies, the manufacturing done primarily in China, and the products being used in everywhere, Europe, China, India, U.S., Sub-Saharan Africa. So the whole world is getting better because we're in a positive-sum uh, interaction between these sides. Absolutely. And, for example, Africa managed to basically skip over the generation of developing, you know, copper wire telephone infrastructure and Im- just leaped over that and go directly to um, uh, wireless uh, mobile phones. And, and now in, in many ways in software and in mobile banking and so on, they're actually leaders. Yes. Uh, now, there's another question that uh, another reader of my blog submitted. His name is Peter Rothman, um, and he wrote this. Hi, Nicola. I hope you can ask Ramez this question. I'm curious what he thinks about... Some of the technologies discussed in his book as quite close to reality. I'm specifically interested in what he thinks about the idea of sharing via, via a direct electronic connection of some sort, affective states, emotional experiences, dreams, and so on. I suggest that in the possibly not very far future, such devices will exist and will further make it essentially impossible to ignore the suffering of others. I think we'll get there. Um, when you look at what we can get in and out of the brain, right now it's primarily at the sensory level. So we can get sight, sound, uh, now touch. We're experimenting with uh, motion control. Those are the, the primary things that we can get in and out. Um, we have some ideas of things and some early experiments on uh, emotion, memory, and attention. But those are more complex subjects we don't understand as well. 
Um, and even we should say that with things like sight and sound, the resolution, the fidelity of what we're able to get in and out right now is very poor compared to how the, the brain works. Mm-hmm. Look at the, uh, Jens Nauman, the first man to have sort of an artificial eye that pumped data into his brain. His vision was 16 pixels by 16 pixels, mm-hmm. as opposed to you are well over a thousand by a thousand. You know, you're thousands by thousands. So it was very, very poor fidelity. So it's going to take a while for the technology to get good enough to get to high fidelity. That said, eventually we'll get there, and eventually we'll get to these these higher order uh, sorts of things happening in the mind, including emotion and affective states. Um, I think that will take some decades. Mm-hmm. Now, in terms of what you just said, in terms of it affecting empathy and being able to ignore the suffering of others and so on, I think it's a tremendously powerful technology. Um, and to a certain extent, it's an extension of the technologies that we have right now. There's some data that suggests that right now, um, a lot of the change in attitudes in the U.S. that I'm most familiar with towards minorities, towards blacks, gays, uh, those two groups in particular, uh, really comes from television. That you build up empathy because of the show, the characters that you see on the television shows that you see. Mm-hmm. So that same thing can only be even more powerful if you can directly connect to effective states. But of course, it depends on which ones you choose to. You know, do you choose to tap into the effective states of uh, starving children in Africa? Do you choose to tap into the effective states of uh, angry protesters in a Muslim country, or do you ignore them? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if I can take that sort of uh, line of thought on the topic of alleviating the suffering of, of others and empathy, uh, I have to say another reasons why I really, another main reason why I really love this book is because very skillfully you weave in the ideas of Buddhism um, and, and in particular Buddhist ethics in the book and in the narrative. And I want to read uh, uh, just a, a couple of sentences from page 144 and ask you to comment on it. So on one, 144, uh, Cade mused, the goals of neuroscience, no, actually that's, uh, uh, I think it was the, the king of Thailand who was making an announcement to that uh, neuroscience conference that he was hosting. So he says, the goals of neuroscience and Buddhism are nearly the same while the, their methods are both different and complementary to one another. Yeah. So this is directly influenced by, um, you know, I have two friends who are both neuroscientists who are also Buddhists, and they've both worked directly with the Dalai Lama um, and with his uh, senior monks uh, doing things like brain studies of actively meditating monks to see what's different about their brains and what's the same and what can we learn from that and so on. And uh, oh, an influence on me was a particular report that one of them gave. He was at a very small conference with about 40, 50 leading neuroscientists and the Dalai Lama. And uh, the Dalai Lama was talking about Buddhism as a science and about meditation as a science, about it as a, or if you will, as a scientific instrument, meditation as a way to get more insight into what's happening in your own mind. Now, it's not something that can be double-blind. You can't do controlled studies. Uh, Reproducibility is a challenge. But it's sort of like the early explorers who wanted to explore uh, new places, sail over the horizon, and so on. Um, and I do think there's a strain of thought 
in uh, Buddhist circles, and especially these people who are engaged in this crossover between neuroscience and Buddhism, that there are complementary things happening there. So in a way, the the book is 27 years too late, because those conversations are actually happening place, taking place right now. Mm-hmm. Now, and in support of that claim, let me bring in another interview that I just did a couple of weeks ago with uh, Gary Marcus, uh, who is a professor of psychology at NYU, and who wrote a very critical uh, New Yorker article about what he called Ray Kurzweil's dubious theories of mind. And his major problem with Ray and, and much of the other uh, work in that field was that it's coming single-handedly from the point of view of neuroscience. Whereas from, in his opinion, in his view, the best way uh, would come at the bridge between psychology and neuroscience. So you couldn't ignore psychology. And, and for him, the, the main issue was how do we bridge the mind and the brain? And I think Buddhism has thousands of years of work on the mind, whereas neuroscience has been focusing on the brain. Uh, somewhat. There's certainly neuroscience itself is a big term. It can mean a lot of things. It can mean anything from people studying individual neurons and synapses and how does long-term potentiation exist or what happens to this individual uh, ion channel to you could call some people doing uh, cognitive psychology on uh, neuroscience, for instance. And there is a chain of thought in neuroscience about, uh, you know, what is the, the connection between brain states and behavioral and cognitive states, of course. Um, but it's a very, very big topic. There's a lot of different pieces of this. And even you could say it, it scales uh, higher than that. It's not just individual psychology, it's sociology. Uh, we know that um, people who are at the top of hierarchies have higher serotonin levels than people who are at the bottom. And we know that the correlation goes both ways. If you take, a, at least in, in monkeys, if you take a primate troop and you change things and you forcibly install one of them as the new alpha male, that that monkey's serotonin levels will rise in response to his new status, right? Similarly, if you take a low-ranking monkey and you give it doses of extra serotonin, it will rise in the ranks. So the connection between society and individual psychology and neuroscience is all there. It's not a very simple system at all. It's it's incredibly interesting to listen. You mention all those studies. Uh, and, And so let me ask you this then. Uh, what is your personal attitude towards Buddhism and, and how do you think, how important do you think would it be for the future of uh, technologies like brain-to-brain communication? Well, I'm an atheist myself, as you know from our past interviews, uh, but Buddhism fascinates me uh, in part because it's a very, uh, at least as it's been translated to the West, which might not be that faithful to how it's currently practiced in, in Asia, it's a very non-hierarchical uh, religion, if you will. I like that. And I also think it, uh, it sort of preaches a certain degree of calm and detachment, uh, from life around you. And I think American society has a tendency to get a little bit too excited about things sometimes. I'm all about excitement. I love passion, but, uh, we can be a little overly reactive. And I think Buddhism encourages you to step back and think about things before you react. So I, I admire those aspects of it. Um, but I'm not a, a practitioner myself. Do you meditate at all? 
I'm a meditator. I'm mostly a lapsed meditator. I've been a, a much more serious meditator in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, I view meditation as exercise for the mind, exercise for the brain. It certainly, there's lots of good clinical evidence that it helps with attentional control. Mm-hmm. It helps with uh, sleeping. It helps with perception in a variety of ways. So I recommend it to anyone. Something you should at least try once in your life. Yeah. So you very much feel the same way as I do towards Buddhism. I'm I'm absolutely fascinated by it. And despite the fact that I'm 100% atheist, uh, of all the religions in the world, I am the most sympathetic towards Buddhism for a number yeah. of reasons. Yeah. Uh, but but especially claims like we are all one, which is very much on the topic of of your your book Nexus. Um, now let me bring two or three of the offshoots uh, uh, or potential uh, offshoots of, of uh, the technology that you're describing in your book. Um, and actually, I'll do so through the words of one of your characters, uh, the Chinese neuroscientist Shu. And on page 182, she says, I have three goals. One, direct brain-to-brain communication. Two, boosting human intelligence to superhuman levels. And three, Uploading human minds to machine systems. Yeah, not not ambitious at all. <laughs> How crazy or or impossible or possible all of those are. Disregarding the timeline here uh, for a second, uh, because I've interviewed people like, for example, Dr. Rando Kuna, uh, who works on whole brain emulation. And he said in my interview with him that uh, mind uploading is not science fiction anymore. There is no uh, scientific reason to believe that any of those three are impossible. And scientifically, uh, there is you know nothing that uh, makes it impossible to increase intelligence, to communicate things between mind and mind, or to copy the contents of a mind into a different substrate, as Randall would say. Um, the question is how far away they are. And I will say on the topic of uploading, we don't know how far away we are. Uh, many people will say, here is a mathematical model that shows that we are this far away. Um, Hans Moravec, from the very beginning, a very early person in that, had one model, you know, one description of what these numbers were. Uh, Ray Kurzweil has a description of what these numbers are. Um, IBM, with their uh, Blue Brain project, has their own analysis of how far away they are. They, they don't make those statements, really, but they'll tell you that they modeled one-tenth of a mouse cortex at one thirty-second the speed, and you can extrapolate for yourself that that means that we're 30 years away. Um, <clears throat> other people, uh, I think that's Ramedra Moda, uh, there's a, another person, Henry Markham, that has his own model of how far away we are. What all of these ignore is that there's tremendous amounts of unknown. You know, I think it was uh, the former Secretary of Defense who said uh, there's the things that – there's the known unknowns and there's the unknown unknowns, and there are many of those. We just do not know for sure what level of resolution of brain activity we have to model faithfully in order to actually produce the same sort of behavior and cognitive states that a brain has. Mm-hmm. It, 
It could be that at the level of neurons and synapses, we can do that. Some people would say it's even higher level than that, that we don't even need to go that far, that we can do it in levels of kind of neural ensembles. It could be that's one level below that, that you have to get to uh, not just synapses, but receptor densities. It could be that you have to go below that, and you have to get to modeling individual neurotransmitter molecules and individual ion channels, and it could be below that. Um, there are single-celled creatures, smaller than a single neuron, that have complex behavior that learn, that seem to have volition, that can pursue food, that learn where the food is, that avoid predators. That's in a single cell smaller than a neuron. So to imagine that just doing things level a neuron as one unit is going to uh, allow us to emulate human cognition, I think is is naive. I think there's going to be more work that we have to do. And I'm also an engineer, so I know that most estimates for something that you've never done before are woefully underestimating the amount of time and resources it will take to accomplish that task. Um, all of that said, those are practical issues. Uh, they're not philosophical issues. There is nothing that prevents us from doing it except the work that we have to do to do it. Yeah, if I, if I can just jump in here and just uh, share with uh, those uh, of our audience who are not aware of your background uh, beyond uh, being an, an author, uh, uh, guys, Ramez has spent 13 years uh, working at Microsoft where he led development on early versions of Microsoft Outlook, Microsoft Internet Explorer, and most recently the Bing search engine. So uh, he is uh, very much indeed also an engineer. And you can learn a lot more about that in our previous interview, which I would post a link to, of course. Uh, but also, uh, I entirely agree with you that those practical issues are important, but from a philosophical point of view, they're technicalities, because um, to me at least, it's more important if they're plausible possibilities or not. And if they are, whether we're going to get there in one, two decades or ten decades, it doesn't really make that much of a difference in the grander scheme of things. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It, it makes a difference to uh, people who are alive today. To us, yes. There's but, a question as to whether or not we will see it. <laughs> yes. But, yeah, but I have no doubt that humanity can get there. Yeah, okay, fantastic, because that's, that's more or less exactly the way I feel. Um, so, Mez, let me, let me ask you this now. You know, you got me hooked here. <laughs> After 500 pages of this book, I want more. And at the, at the last page here, at the very cover... Uh, of your book, uh, I read that Nexus is your first novel, and the next will be Crooks. So yes. please tell me that Crooks is the second part of Nexus. Crooks is the sequel to Nexus. Uh, it will come out in September. Thank you. Uh, you're very welcome. <laughs> and, and Nexus, just so your readers know, or your, uh, your listeners know, can be read entirely as a standalone novel. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Uh, but Crux picks up in the same world shortly after Nexus and continues the exploration of that technology. So what can you tell us uh, about that, if anything? Oh, my gosh. Uh, Crux picks up a few months after uh, the events at the end of Nexus. I don't want to spoil what happens at the end of Nexus. Um, but the world has been changed somewhat by the events that happened in the first book. And it's more exploration of similar topics of uh, what happens with these technologies, how will they be used for good, how will they be used for bad. And uh, I've also done my best to make it an absolute page-turner. 
uh, my goal is that uh, you cannot put the book down whatsoever. <laughs> um, and uh, I seem to be succeeding at that based on feedback from readers. You're absolutely succeeding, yeah. And uh, I think I, I actually would be rereading it soon because it's just it's just a fun book to, to read. Uh, it's it's very gripping and yet and 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 in some in some ways it it makes you be scared of some things but at the same time I find it very refreshing and and sort of very optimistic too so I I really enjoyed all that very potent mixture of, of a number of things like this uh, but so we can look forward to Crooks you said in September that's correct yes fantastic so I'll definitely get that one um, now. How important do you think is a technology like Nexus on the way towards a technological singularity? Whew. Well, uh, <laughs> I have trouble with that word, uh, singularity. Uh, I think it's a slightly apocalyptic word, and I don't really buy it. Um, so I think a technology like Nexus would be a great technology in terms of augmenting human cognition, both individually and collectively, and it would a lot of positive effects for the planet. How about that? Mm-hmm. And and what about the technological singularity in its own right? Uh, would you care to say a few words about it? How likely or unlikely do you think it is? It depends on what it is that you mean by the word. Um, if you mean there will be a point at which an intelligence explosion occurs and uh, the first superhuman AI will, within seconds or minutes or milliseconds, create something millions of times smarter than itself, that seems completely implausible to me. Um, if it's uh, simply a description of the moment at which we have achieved greater than human intelligence, great, I have no problem with that. Though I'd say we already have greater than human intelligence in many, many, many ways. So perhaps the singularity already happened, and we're in the post-singularity world right now. Mm-hmm. I think a key element in that in that meaning of the word might be the sort of self-improving, recursively self-improving element of, of, of such intelligence. Because, yes, perhaps we can reach a little bit higher than the average human level of artificial intelligence, but I think the key for it, as I.J. Good put it, is that it has to be the last invention we ever need to make because it would recursively self-improve itself from then onwards. Yeah, I don't see that anywhere on the horizon, uh, if that's, it's even possible. Um, it seems quite likely to me that to achieve uh, an intelligence level of X plus one takes much more than X intelligence, if you will. So you can look at it this way. Um, right now, the systems that are creating the next microprocessors are already vast superhuman intelligences. You look at the Intel Corporation, and you have thousands of people working on the next chip design, really tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, if you combine all the the reciprocal efforts and all the material science and engineering and so on. Also, they are armed with the most sophisticated supercomputers on the planet. So that is a vast superhuman intelligence. And what it produces as its output is uh, the next Intel chip. It's not a... Uh, dramatically faster superintelligence, if you will. So it takes a lot of brain power to improve brain power and probably um, much more brain power in than brain power out that you get in a certain way. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. And it seems to me that you're, of course, probably 
using your experience at, at Bing in particular to to make observations like that? Yes, I mean, I spent six years working with uh, neural nets and other uh, machine learning techniques with very, very large budgets and uh, tens of thousands of, of machines, hundreds of thousands of CPU cores and gigantic training sets. And they're very sophisticated technologies, uh, but they're not humans. And the uh, R&D that goes into them is the output of thousands of people uh, to get incremental improvements in them. Mm-hmm. And what do you think of, of, of claims like other people, like, for example, with similar opinions to yours, like Jaron Lanier, for example, who said that the singularity is most likely going to end up with the blue screen of death? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I am not Jaron Lanier, and we have very, very, very different perspectives. Uh, I am definitely much more of an optimist about the impact of technology on our lives. I just don't think it's going to be so apocalyptic. I don't think it's going to be so eschatological. There won't be one moment in time when everything changes. Imagine that you created a superhuman AI right now that was ten times as smart as any individual human. Would that mean that world hunger ended? Would that mean that climate change ended? Would that mean that war ended? Nope. Uh, it would not be the new ruler of the world. It would be a highly paid engineer at Google. All right, that's, that's kind of, oh, it might be a very highly paid engineer at Google. But the collective intelligence of Google um, is much higher than that 10 times smarter than a human being uh, system would be. So you have a very, very, very long way before you have something that is got more brain power than the current organizations that exist. And even then, the many of the hard problems that we face are extremely sublinear. People say, hey, we have exponential increase in computing power. But many of the problems we work on are exponentially hard. Uh, if you want to get into molecular modeling at the, to the quantum level, you want to solve the Schrodinger equation, well, that scales exponentially, too, with the number of electrons in the system. And if you want to deal with... Uh, any sort of very, very large, hard problem, they are usually much harder than linear as well. So they chew up that exponential computing power pretty easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's it's consumed uh, very, very quickly, yeah, without so much uh, benefit. Um, yeah. at, at least the benefit is not exponential as the claims yeah, are. there is definitely benefit. It's just that the benefit is not exponential, it's not explosive. Yeah. So do you, do you disagree with Jaron that, the, the singularity, the way it's being perceived and sort of popularized at the moment is kind of like a religion for geeks? Um, I think he might be overstating it somewhat. I wouldn't, I think there is a little bit of religion for geeks aspect to it, but I think it's more, uh, just an oversimplification of how hard the problems that we face are and an oversimplification of how uh, how powerful intelligence is and how easy it is to bootstrap new levels of intelligence. Mm-hmm. Mez, uh, we're reaching here towards the end of our interview, which I have to say I enjoy tremendously. Uh, and the traditional last two questions that I always ask of my guests are these. So, first of all, where can people learn more about you and your work, your future books, and so on? Uh, rameznam.com Fantastic. And uh, do you happen to have a single message that you would like our viewers and listeners to take away from this interview with you today? 
I'll give the same message I gave last time, which is that we are the ones who create the future. So don't just be a spectator. Uh, participate. Help make it happen. And, and that is indeed a, a fantastic message. Ramesh Nam, thank you very much for being with us today. Nicola, thank you. It's been great to be here again.